great. Well, welcome back. Uh, for those of you that are sitting in on the service, if, uh, yeah, you can start to make the, start to find your way to your seats, that would be excellent. <laughs> um, as you may or may not have known, uh, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And so we're going to be joining together in prayer at the end of the service. But for now, we just wanted to share some stories um, from some of our workers that have worked or lived in a persecuted church context, um, just to share their perspective a little bit. Uh, if you're tuning in online, it might be a little different for you. Um, for some of the speakers, uh, for security reasons, we can't have them on camera. Um, but uh, I would encourage you to continue to tune in because uh, you will get the audio still, um, and I would love for you to hear their stories. Um, but for now, we do have someone uh, we are able to, to have on camera, and so I'd like to call up Doug to, to share a little bit on uh, persecution. It's on. It's on. Good. Thank you. Yeah, there's nicer topics I'd rather talk about today other than persecution. It's not a happy subject, and it's not one many of us are familiar with or relate to, even think about on a, on a daily basis. It's very nice in our comfortable, uh, safe Canada, uh, middle-class communities, and uh, so to talk about persecution is not nice. But actually, many of us in this fellowship have either grandparents or parents who fled countries in order to come here. And some of us actually have had that personal experience of fleeing countries because of persecution. So there is quite a few. Actually, we do have a history of it within here. And many of us have heard stories of maybe famous martyrs uh, from the past. Maybe you've read books about them. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German man who was hung by the Nazis. Uh, Bishop Oscar Romero, who was shot while preaching in El Salvador, some of these bigger names that we they get in the press, we've heard of those, but there's hundreds and thousands of the unknowns. Um, Pastor uh, Hussein Sudman was martyred for his faith. Esther John, Central, another Central Asian person. House church leader, Pastor Samuel Lamb, who spent over 20 years of his life in labor camps in Northwest China. And there's lots more names I could tell you about my friend Matt, my good friend who was shot in the head while he was having tea with his family one afternoon. And my other really good friend, Raymond, uh, Pastor Raymond, who was abducted three years ago by state authorities in broad daylight on a busy road and hasn't been seen up since uh, for his faith. So there's lots and there's hundreds of thousands of people, again, as I've said, who've suffered. And the question needs to be asked, so why? You know, do we sort of have a persecution complex or something? Or what's, why is it that Christians are persecuted? And uh, it's basically because of our association with Jesus and uh, because of him. And in, in just a few moments before he was arrested and then taken to his own execution, Jesus said these words in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world... It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. I think 
there's more of us. Is there another slide coming up there? Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. And then we looked at this a few months ago when we looked at the Beatitudes, Jesus' words, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this the whole theme is demonstrated so thoroughly in the book of Acts. Uh, the stoning of Stephen and then the, the, the believing community is scattered where there's arrest made, beatings, beaters, beating, sorry, imprisonments, martyrdom, all sorts of, the book of Acts is amazing. If you have never read it or you haven't read it in a long time, read it this afternoon. It makes for a good Saturday, Sunday afternoon reading. Very exciting book. And most of the New Testament is written in the context of persecution. Read this verse in Hebrews 13. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who were ill-treated as if yourselves were suffering. And that's what we're doing today. And then the Apostle Peter also wrote this. I'll let you read it yourself. So we praise God that we bear your name, Lord Jesus. And then the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of his letters, maybe all of them, I don't know, uh, from prison. And uh, he knows all about it. And then he wrote these words in 2 Timothy. You know about my teaching, my life, my purpose, my faith. You know what things happened to me, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Well, in the end, he didn't. But anyways, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So persecution is the norm for followers of Jesus. And do you remember that really cool story at the end of John's Gospel where after Jesus' resurrection, he goes to Galilee, and the, 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 the disciples go back fishing. They've had a bad night, and they come back to shore, and they find Jesus on the shore cook, cooking them breakfast. Do you remember that story? And then he welcomes, he's, it's just that story's packed full of symbols uh, for Peter to be reconciled with Jesus, because Peter had denied Jesus three times. And so it's just that whole story is just full of stuff about how Peter can be recon reconciled. And that's so significant because the book of John was written during a time of intense persecution for the church. And many people would have denied Jesus, would have denied their faith out of fear and terror or whatever. And Jesus and, and John in this story shows how there is reconciliation. There is a way back to Jesus if you've denied him. And it's a sweet, sweet story. Again, read that after you've read Acts. Persecution can be complicated. Uh, local Christians suffer because of the acts of global powers. Now, Western countries and most of the world, Western countries are perceived, wrongly, to be Christian governments. Thus, local Christians can be seen and are often as seen as agents of those governments or representatives. Thus, when Western government, I was going to go X, Y, Z, but I think I'll choose you, uh, is militarily or other way aggressive toward a country, the local Christians suffer because that's because of that wrong perception. Both times when Iraq was invaded, our lives were threatened and the churches in our area were attacked. And what did we have to do with it? Uh, 
so outside involvement sometimes causes persecution. When, when aid is brought in, foreign money is specifically focused on Christians, then the non-Christians get a little bit jealous and uh, feel again the faith they're being un unwrongly dealt with. And so, yeah, sometimes persecution uh, just happens. But it's also good to remember that Christians have a history of persecuting others also. We have a really bad history in this. So we don't want to be too quick to point the finger. There's some amazing characteristics of persecuted believers. They suffer. They endure pain, but they know how to do it. It's difficult it is. They face the pain together, and they know how to, to deal with their pain. They take their suffering seriously. They pray. They know how to pray. They don't sort of go for this, you know, what we often do here in Canada. We get our five minutes with Jesus in the morning. When you're going to walk out your door knowing that you likely will be arrested, beaten, shamed, you're going to pray. And you're going to pray together. You're going to gather together and pray. And at parts of the world where persecution is really fierce, people gather together to pray with great urgency. And they keep at it. They keep at it. They value fellowship. They need each other. So despite often the, the suspicions, you don't know who in your midst might turn you into the authorities, there's a, a fellowship together. We're in this together. We've got to support each other. I've heard many stories of pastors whose children can't go to school because of their parents' faith. So the church rallies around, finds teachers who can help with them with homeschooling and, and other ways to help them learn and to support each other. There's lots of things, amazing stories. But another one that sort of defies logic is their share of their faith. Now, why, if you're going to get in big trouble, are you keen to share your faith? It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. But uh, they do. And sometimes persecution is so bad, you just have to hunker down and hide. Other times you need to flee the scene because it's just too difficult. And all of those are fine. But, but the churches that are under severe super, uh, persecution are experiencing often the most growth. I just just heard of some amazing stories yesterday, and and uh, and just say that the the growth is massive, and uh, it's quite it is quite amazing. And it's amazing that it's often without the resources which we feel in the West we need to do evangelism. They don't have those, but they do it anyways. Earlier, I mentioned Pastor Samuel Lamb, and he was famous for repeating. More persecution, more growth. More persecution, more growth. And that phrase had not only to do with the numbers of people coming to faith, but also with their, their growth. Uh, prior to our retirement, we had the privilege of meeting with a group of house church leaders who were, who were working to uh, send their workers out into, into global outreach around the world. And these people, men and women, had just come from two or three days of intense interrogation by the authorities. And they were very clearly physically and emotionally exhausted by it. But they still wanted to come for this training because they knew what they were doing, what they wanted the churches to do, was send people out into the world in global outreach. And it was an amazing experience for us. And, uh, but that kind of sounds like the stories in Acts, which you will read about this afternoon. And what can we do? Well, sometimes we can send resources, but that does complicate things for people as well. But we can pray. When I've asked people, well, how can we help you? And the answer has always been, pray for us. We pray for you, pray for us. And how do we pray 
for people. If you don't get information, it's difficult. Well, again, Book of Psalms is an amazing book of prayer. I've heard Derwin say this multiple times. Book of Psalms. It's full of relevant prayers for those who suffer. So this afternoon, after you finish reading the book of Acts, <laughs> open up the book of Psalms and start reading through some of the Psalms. It's amazing. If you can't remember which one to start with, Psalm 1, 2, 3 is a good beginning. Okay, Jordan, over to you, bro. Thank you so much for sharing, Doug. Um, as we heard, yeah, persecution comes in all, all shapes and forms. Um, and I think for, for us in North America, yeah, we suffer a degree of persecution, but there's, there's so much more going on in the world. And to help with that, we have a global outreach team that's working in a persecuted church context. And so I'm going to have them come up to share, um, but they're going to be off camera and so for those of you online, like I said, um, you'll have slides to view, um, but uh, I would encourage you to stay tuned as you, as you listen to their story. So as we've just heard, in some countries, um, Christians face difficulties and discrimination and persecution because of their Christian identity. And yet some are still willingly open to share their faith. And we would like to tell some of their stories. Hi, my name is Dan. I grew up as part of a religious minority in my country. I live in a village with my parents and extended family in our family. We've had a lot of conflict and health issues over the years. One day, one of my friends told me about a man who would regularly come to our village to lead meetings for prayer and healing in the name of Jesus. I asked him if he would take me to the meeting the next time the man came to our village. At the meeting, I was really impressed to see that the way that uh, people were praying, but I had heard a lot about these Christians, and I had a lot of questions. I continued to attend the meetings and stayed in contact with these Christians. I was very encouraged to hear about the teaching and promises of Jesus, and I eventually put my trust in him as my savior. I was excited to tell my parents and praise the Lord. Uh, my par parents and brothers and sisters also uh, put their trust in him. However, one of my brothers became very angry he strongly protested our becoming Christians, and he continually seeks to uh, find an opportunity to bring me and our family back to our traditional religion and beliefs. He even uses witchcraft and curses to scare us from our newfound faith. Some others in our community spread rumors that I received money to become a Christian. They shame me and accuse me at public gatherings such as weddings and funerals but I am still searching for how our family can celebrate these funerals and weddings in ways that glorify God. But my story isn't unique. A friend of mine, Steve, lived with his in-laws in a different village. His son and daughter were sick for a very long time. Then one of his relatives visited, and he shared about the healing power of Jesus. He talked about a prayer group and Steve invited this uh, group to come into his home, hoping that 
there would be some healing for his children. When he did see uh, his children's health improving, he too uh, put his trust in Jesus and began to follow him. The prayer group continued to visit Steve's home for prayer meetings, but the villagers were not happy. Eventually, they forced him and his family to leave the village and find somewhere else to live. But there are many stories like ours. Another man I know was a successful foreman and, uh, and contractor, and when he became a believer, his workers heard about it, and they all quit working for him. His work contacts also refused to do business with him unless he came back to the traditional faith. But he says he will follow Jesus, whatever the cost. Not everyone is like him, though. I know of people who have decided to follow Jesus, and then when they see that they will lose their family, uh, they will uh, not be able to find someone to, uh, to marry, um, that they won't be able to find a good job to be able to support their family, that they'll be ostracized from their community, and even worse, uh, they, they just feel that the cost is too high and they turn back. Hello, everyone. My name is Shawnee. My family left their traditional religion and became Christian. So when I was born, my identity was Christian. But for me, it is more than that. I love Jesus and I trust in him. A while ago, my parents made an arrangement for my marriage. So for every young girl, this is a scary thing because you're going to leave your family and live with your husband's family. But I was even more afraid because my husband and his family are very strong in the traditional practices of our people. They are respected leaders and, and elders and leaders um, in the religious practices. One of my brothers was really concerned for me, but the arrangement had been made, and this agreement could not be broken. So we were married, and I came to live with my husband and his family. They are very angry that I will not turn away from Jesus and perform the religious practices with them. They threaten me, and I have been beaten and abused. But I will not leave my faith. I will not leave Jesus. Often, I'm afraid of what else they might do to me. Pray for me, and pray for others like me. That woman uh, who was... The sister of one of our pastors um, was eventually uh, killed by her husband and her mother-in-law because she would not give up her faith in Christ. Christians in this country belong to the lowest levels of society and are often trapped in a cycle of poor education and poverty. Because of the blasphemy laws, uh, Christians are at a constant risk of being accused of blasphemy and receiving harsh punishments if they're convicted. Many Christians live together in closed neighborhoods known as colonies, which provide a measure of uh, security. But even still, there have been several large-scale attacks in recent years. Please pray for these Christians for their safety, 
that they will be a strong witness in difficult and dangerous circumstances and that they will not leave their faith. Thank you so much for sharing and thank you for, for giving a voice to, to stories that we may otherwise not have been able to hear. Our next story uh, comes from another global outreach team that we have uh, working in another part of the world, um, also a persecuted church context. Uh, they can't be with us, uh, but we have Stephen um, here to read their story on their behalf. Um, the implication in the story is that uh, the subject is a believer um, and that, uh, yeah, the persecution that they face is, is because of their faith. Um, of course, with... Uh, yeah, with emails and, and internet uh, monitoring, um, yeah, we weren't able to include that uh, in, the, in the story directly. In an undisclosed location in Central Asia lives a minority people group who live like foreigners in their own land. In recent years, the government of their country has implemented forced re-education in an attempt to integrate them more into the majority culture and society. Every adult has been through interrogation to determine their productive value to society and measure their risk level to public safety. One young man, Sahib, was going through a routine police check and his phone was searched for illegal content. The police officer found the Skype app on his phone and told Sahib that Skype was an illegal application. Sahib told the officers that he'd never used it before. He had just bought the phone and Skype came pre-installed on it. They didn't believe him, so they took his phone and put him into custody. All for having Skype installed on his phone. He was immediately taken to a re-education facility where he remained for the next two years. Every day, he had to recite national propaganda, sing national songs, and memorize teachings from the president. And after these two years of re-education, he was forced to work in a factory for less than $3 a day for an entire year. After all of this, he was finally allowed to go home and to live with his family. And there are many people like Sahib who are now dealing with the trauma of this government-sponsored experiment of mass cultural reset. Loved ones died during these imprisonments. Funerals and birthdays and weddings were missed. Souls were crushed and many reeds bruised. Local friends who regularly traveled to these places to bring hope, healing, and encouragement testified to how hungry people are for meaning and how desperate they are for resources to treat clinical depression, anxiety, and psychological damage. These friends have shared that it is not only the Sahibs who need help, though. The low-level officers and staff at these re-education camps have also been victimized out of fear for losing their jobs, or worse, in an authoritarian work culture. They also went against their natures to use force, coercion, and manipulation against these minority people. Please pray for the oppressed and for the oppressors in the nearly one million stories like Sahib's that have happened over the past few years in this part of the world. Thank you so much for your prayers.
Thank you, Stephen, for, for reading that story. Again, that comes from one of our, uh, one of our other global outreach teams um, yeah, working across the globe currently. Um, it's, it's hard to comprehend the, the idea that, yeah, you could be investigated at, at a moment's notice and not even know what you would be investigated for. I think for, for us in North America, it's, yeah, that, that, that's just a foreign concept. Um, if you're able to stay for the second service, um, we have a member who's going to be sharing, uh, just sharing more stories on what it's like to, to live in, to be born in, and, and grow up in a, a persecuted church context. Um, for security purposes, we're not able to have them on for the first service, but I wanted to share a little bit about how we came to that decision. Um, because I think for a lot of you, um, if you're like me, connecting to this stuff is a little difficult. Um, you may not have experiences, in fact, you probably don't have experiences uh, similar to the stories that you've heard. Um, but as, as I was talking to this member, um, as we were discussing the logistics of having them speak, I mentioned that you know, first service is gonna be filmed. And so that's gonna go up on the internet um, and that'll be published. And of course, they said, okay, well, can't do that. And I thought, okay, yeah, of course you can't do that. Um, so what we'll do instead is we'll just have you off camera because um, we have other speakers that are doing the same. And in my head, I thought, well, that's gonna be fine. They're gonna be like, okay, great. Um, and then later on, they, they said, you know what? I can't, I can't even risk that. And, you know, for me, it was, you know, it was a bit of a stumbling block, but I thought, okay, well, we'll, we'll work around this. Um, but he noted that, you know, it's not just, it's not just a matter of him being off camera. It's not just a matter of not having his face shown. If people recognize his voice, that puts not only his life in danger, but his family's life. And that's, that's something that I just, I, it never occurred to me. Like, I'm ashamed to say it, but it just never occurred to me. And one of the, one of the lines that really stuck out to me, he said, if it was just me suffering the consequences, I could bear that. And even that statement alone is just such, like, I was just blown away by that. You know, the fact that you would share your testimony at risk of your own well-being is, is something foreign to, to me. But after he said, but if something were to happen to my family, there's nothing I could do and I could never forgive myself. And I think that's, that's the part that, at least for me, being in a North American context, I've just totally missed that. When I got baptized and was asked to, to count the cost of following Jesus, I did so from an individualistic perspective. I thought, what is this going to, you know, what are the costs for me? You know, maybe I lose some friends. You know, maybe I, I have some sort of, you know, I don't know, social annexation from, from different groups. But it was always, you know, how is this going to affect me? There was never a matter of how is this going to affect my family? Who, who are the people in my life that I'm putting in danger by 
taking on the faith. And I think that's something that, you know, that, that tension that you have to live with, being in a persecuted church context, that just that blows my mind. Like, I, I get worried when my wife goes on a vacation, right? Because there's this sense of I have absolutely no control over this scenario. And I think for those of you that have children, maybe you've experienced, I know my mom would always tell me this, um, you know, when I started driving, right? There's this sense of, look, like, I, I'm just praying so hard because now, now my son's behind the wheel and, like, I've seen him drive and it's, it's not good, <laughs> right? And, and there's, there's that same, you know, we get anxiety from these small things where we just don't have control. And yet, there are brothers and sisters across the world, they live with this on a regular basis. They live with it on a regular basis. And it's so much more extreme than just, you know, someone's driving or someone's on a vacation. It's, you know, I can't be seen when I leave this building because that would put my family's life in danger. And that's, for me, that was something I, I totally miss, and, and I wanted to share that with you. Because I think um, for a lot of us here or for a lot of you tuning in online, I think you come from a similar background. And so the question then is, well, what can we do? And you heard after every single story and after Doug shared as well, pray. Pray. You know, and we sang about the powerful name of Jesus at the start of the service. Our prayers do not go unheard. They're not for nothing. But your brothers and sisters across the globe are suffering. And so I ask that you would pray. And so for the next minute, um, we're going to have a moment of silence. And I just want you to be thinking about those um, across the world, those who have given their lives, those who have suffered tremendously for their faith. And after that, I'll, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a good and powerful God. We thank you that you love and care for us. And we thank you that you love and care for those who are persecuted, that you haven't forgotten them. Lord, I thank you for all those who are willing to, to share their stories and the stories of others. Lord, I ask that you would help those stories to, to resonate with us, that we would be moved to, to action, that you would, you would give us a compassion that would actually move us into action, that we would be reminded that as they grow in their resolve and their faith for you, that we would grow in our resolve to, to pray for them. Lord, remind us that we are part of the same church body that we are a part of you 
and that through that we're, we're connected. Lord, help us not to forget our brothers and sisters in suffering. Be with them, we ask. And we pray all this in your name.